core to EHS is helping people develop their firsthand relationship with Jesus and not, not live off other people's spirituality. Uh, and so silence and stillness is a core part of, we want it to be part of our lives as well as the people in our church's lives. And as you know, stillness and silence is not part of the culture at all. And, uh, and so as you, so go, go with me to page, uh, go with me to week one where it says uh, day one, midday, evening office. It's on page 20. Does everybody have one of these? Who does not have one of these? Raise your hands. Okay, can you share with someone while you're, would that be okay? And um, so what we're going to do is we're going we're to have two minutes of silence. Then there's going to be a scripture reading there. It's from 1 Samuel 15. We're going to read it out loud together. And then I'll read the devotional. I'll read the question. And then we're going to have two more minutes of silence. That's going to be our framework. We're going to have what's morning prayer. Uh, together. And uh, so I don't know how you are with silence. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, Dallas Willard once said that silence and solitude were the two most difficult radical disciplines for the Western church. And, uh, and so this is actually the hardest part of EHS when you bring this to a church. It's bringing people into a dimension of silence and stillness. It's so painful. Yet, God's wired us for that. It's, it's, it's part of our you know, inner being that we, we long for it. Every culture, every age group, every race, every nation, God's made human beings with, with something in us that longs for a dimension of stillness and silence before God. Now, what makes our silence different is that we do it before the Lord. We're not doing mindfulness, which is, you know, it's in secular schools and sports teams, as you all know. Uh, you know, Buddhists do silence, Sufis do silence, Hindus do silence. Uh, what makes our silence unique is that we are being still before the Lord. You know, it's God who created silence. It's, it belongs to him. And uh, so it's not new agey. It's, it's not that. And I'm not against mindfulness. I have no problem with it being in schools. I think it helps people. And, but for us, it's a distinctive part of Christian spirituality that we, we want to bring back into our lives and our churches. So what I do during this two minutes of silence, let me invite you. Now, what's going to happen is... Uh, you know, I, I encourage you to take a nice deep breath, you know. Now, your mind's going to get distracted, right? Your mind's going to start wandering, you know, coffee, and, you know, what's for lunch, and, oh, my gosh, that email, and, oh, so-and-so's mad at me, and I've got to call them when I get back to the room at lunch, and those kind of things. And this, the issue of distractions and silence has been written about, really, since the second century in the Desert Fathers. And, and so uh, a guy named John Cassian, some of you may know the name, uh, one of the Desert Fathers, uh, writes a lot about, you know, when you're distracted, uh, get a simple word like Abba, Father, Jesus. And because the goal is we're, gonna, we're opening up our will to his will. We're surrendering to his love. And we're also open to hearing anything he wants to say to us. Uh, but as our mind wanted, you, find, you know, you're here before the Lord being still. And so we're not, the goal is not talking. We're not, we're not interceding. The goal is just being with Jesus. You know, like a, you know, I love him. It's communion. And he may want to say something to us. He, you, he may not. But uh, the issue is simply being with him. I, I love him. He loves me. I'm, I'm allowing his love to come into me, and uh, I'm enjoying him and allowing him to enjoy me. But when my mind wanders, I just, my, I, I just use the word Abba. I say, oh, Abba, oh, Abba. You know, I'm just, oh, Abba, you know, in your presence. And so I don't beat myself up. It's fine. You may get distracted, you know, 40 times in, in two minutes. But that's okay. Every time you find yourself over there, it's, oh, I said, thank you, Abba, Abba, you know, I'm back. And, and really, it's, it's fine, it's, it's normal. And as you 
as we grow in our muscles of silence, it becomes much more natural and easy, but it's very normal. To, it's expected that distractions are going to happen, especially depending on what's happening in your life right now. So just ca- get a, a, a you know, one word, Jesus, you know, here I am, some phrase, something simple that you'll come back to when you find yourself distracted. And it just keeps us centered on Jesus together. So, all right, so... Uh, oh, here's a, oh, here's a guideline. Sit down and have a few deep breaths to settle into silence. You know, choose a very simple prayer to express your openness and desire for God. Close your eyes. You'll offer this prayer to Jesus, allowing his will and love full access in your life. That's the goal. And then when you become distracted, just offer again that simple prayer back to God. Okay? So, with that, let me invite you to close your eyes and, you know, just take a moment. You know, be aware of your body and your person. And let's be still. Uh, before the Lord together. And we'll take two minutes. All right, so we're going to read uh, again on page 20 from 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22 and 23. And as you know, the story of Saul, he was you know, a leader in, among God's people. But unlike David, uh, he got a lot done, but he did not have a walk with God. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a good being with God person, a listener. Uh, and so Samuel comes to him at this point and rebukes him. So let's read it out loud together. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the sin of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So Saul, the first king of Israel, did not know much about silence or listening to God. Like David, he was gifted, anointed, and successful military political leader. Yet unlike David, we we never see him seeking to be with God. In this passage, Samuel the prophet reprimands Saul for doing many religious acts, offering burnt offerings and sacrifices, but not quieting himself enough to listen or to heed God. It's a quote from Mother Teresa. We all must take the time to be silent and to contemplate, especially those who live in big cities like London and New York, where everything moves so fast. I always begin my prayer in silence, for it is in the silence of the heart that God speaks. God is the friend of silence. We need to listen to God because it's not what we say, but what he says to us and through us that matters. Prayer feeds the soul. As blood is to the body, prayer is to the soul. And it brings you closer to God. It also gives you a clean and pure heart. A clean heart can see God, can speak to God, and can see the love of God in others. The question is, how, how can you make more room in your life for silence in order to, to listen to God? And his lovely prayer, you know, unclutter my heart, O God, until I'm quiet enough to hear you and speak out of the silence. Help me in these few moments to stop, to listen, to wait, to be still, and to allow your presence to envelop me. You know, in Jesus' name. All right, so let's again, let's just take our, let's take two minutes here. 
And uh, let's be still before the Lord. Lord, meet us here today. Uh, Lord, you know, here we are, Father. We're, we're your followers, and we're on our own journey, and you're molding us. And yet, uh, we find ourselves, Lord, as under-shepherds, trying to lead your people to you. Uh, so, Father, that's way beyond us. So we open up our hearts to you. Mold us. Do your work that you want to do in us today for the name of Jesus' sake, for the world's sake, and for your church's sake. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right. So if we could hand out those sheets. Ah, you got that. Yeah, those sheets on uh, Genogram Your Family. So let me invite you to, to uh, go with me to, we're on session two, leadership that goes back to go forward. And uh, you could, you know, we're going to use it in the afternoon. So we'll, yeah, if, let's do it in the afternoon. That'd probably be better. So you're going to get a, a sheet that says genogram your family, which you're going to use in about 15 minutes. Uh, so again, in your notes, if you're taking a, you know, some notes to follow along here, we're on page four and, uh, So just hold on to that sheet that you're receiving right now, and uh, you'll all need a pen and pencil in, in a few moments. In fact, if you've got, again, you all receive this book, you know, uh, as part of your packet, the Emotionally Spirituality book, because what, you, what you've got there is a, a book, a workbook, and a daily office book. They are, that's what's called the participant's kit for people in, in a church that go through the course. And so, uh, page 95, I just want to read you a couple paragraphs there as we, as we launch out on this. Go, uh, you know, it's, it's called going back to go forward. And we're, we're, we're going to do it from a leadership level today. But on the bottom of page 95, it says this. When the Bible uses the word family, I'm on, on the, the power of the family. When the Bible uses the word family, it refers to our ex- entire extended family over three to four generations. That means your family, in the biblical sense, includes all your brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-uncles and aunts, and significant others going back to the mid-1800s. While we are affected by powerful external events and circumstances through our earthly lives, our families are the most powerful group to which we will ever belong. Even those who left home as young adults determined to break from their family histories soon find out their family's way of doing life follows them wherever they go. And the principle is what happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. So, for example, again, so in, in the Emotion of the Leader book, which you read, remember there's four pilings underneath here, uh, and the first one is Face Your Shadow. And... You know, there's a nice little definition of shadow in there. You know, it's kind of tough to, to, to it's not all sin, but it's, it's, those un, it's kind of like those untamed emotions, those less than pure motives, kind of called the ugly side of us, you know, that shape our behaviors. And, and I don't know a, a better, quicker, easier way to get at our shadows uh, and our insides than doing a genogram. And so we spent quite a number of years working on this to kind of help people kind of quickly get into their icebergs and uh, see how their family of origins impacted who they are today. So, again, but when we ignore our shadow, this is what we end up with. We end up with having church meetings with elephants in the room, but nobody knows 
what to do about it. We just know that something's here. And we like to say big elephants start as little elephants and they grow. So some of our church meetings have lots of little elephants and a few big ones floating around in the back. So again, so here, here's a, a diagram of, this, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph from Genesis uh, tw- uh, 12 to 50. And here's, oops, sorry. Uh, and so, for example, here's Abraham, here's Isaac, here's Jacob, and here's Joseph. And as you know, there's a blessing that's passed on from generation to generation in the book of Genesis. And we're here because of the blessing of Abraham. But Genesis also shows us that there's, there's also negative legacies that are passed on from generation to generation. So, for example, you see in, in Abraham's family with Sarah, you see li- he lies about Sarah a couple of times. Uh, he's got that in their marriage. And then the next generation... Uh, Isaac and Rebekah, all those lies about the inheritance and who gets the blessing. Remember, the, lots of lying. By the third generation, Jacob, his name means liar. The guy lies like crazy. And, uh, and then the next generation, the, the sons of Jacob, they lie about the death of Joseph. Remember, what a lie, but he's dead. And, I mean, they fake a funeral and a wake. I mean, they live a lie for a long time. They also see sibling rivalry in every generation. Brothers are fighting. You know, uh, Ishmael and, and, and Isaac are fighting, first generation. Next generation, Esau and Jacob are fighting. Third generation, all kinds of fighting going on with Joseph's brother. You see, uh, you see favoritism in every generation. A parent favors a child. And it's a very destructive thing in families if you've been part of a family like that. And it goes on every generation. And you see unhealthy marriages in every generation. You've got Abraham and Sarah. You know, he's got a child out of wedlock. You've got Isaac and, Re- and Rebecca. There's not one nice thing said about their marriage except when they met I mean, their marriage is very bad. By the time you get to the third generation, Jacob, he's got two wives and two marriages. He's got, you know, 13 kids, blended family. I mean, it's a, it's a colossal mess by the third generation. And, uh, and, but somehow Joseph emerges out of this, the fourth generation. Joseph emerges, and, and he's able to integrate all that history, uh, good, bad, and, and ugly, uh, before God, and he emerges out of that, and he becomes a blessing to nations. And so in the same way, his basic principles is theologically. The blessings and sins of our, of our families have impact lasting for at least three to four generations. That what happens in one family tends to get repeated in the next. And actually, I, I work with a, you know, a, a, you know, a couple Old Testament scholars and you know, this whole theme of, of generation to generation. And as one scholar puts it, this word punish is a very important word. You'll see this throughout the Old Testament. God punishes the sins of the fa- children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And he says, really, it's a, you really can't translate it in English in one word. Uh, and and, and it, it, it really, the best translation is it tends to be repeated. That what happens in one generation, uh, the children end up tends to be repeated in the generations that follow. So you see, for, you see this as, as a theme in Ten Commandments, you see it in Exodus 34 and other places. You know, God says, don't make yourself an idol, but I'm a jealous God. Oh, yeah, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers of the third and fourth generation. And so you've got this theme in the Old Testament of, yes, you're responsible for your life and your own sins. At the same time, you're part of a family, and there's patterns that tend to get repeated and passed on from generation to generation. So if you think of families in your churches, for example, you know, you think, oh, you know, you know, a lot divorce, 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 you know, addiction, 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 you know, unstable relationships, you know, and a lack of any emotionality or feeling, um, you know, children born out of wedlock, you know, suicide, you know, mental hospitalizations. And, and it's almost uncanny when you start looking at families like, oh, my gosh, it's like these themes. Uh, and, but then the, the second theological kind of anchor is that when you become a Christian, 
you're born into the new family of Jesus. Uh, you're born again. You, you become a Christian, and you now have a new father, Abba. You have new brothers and sisters internationally around the world. You have uh, a new inheritance. Uh, you've got a new freedom. All your debts are canceled and sins of your past. And, 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 and now Jesus said, you, you become a Christian, uh, your first loyalty is to me. Yeah, I'm, for, I'm Italian-American. I'm first a Christian. You're not, I'm, then I'm secondly, I'm American. But I'm, I'm, I'm first a Christian, then I'm Italian-American. But my first loyalty is, is Christ. And that's why Jesus says, unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, you cannot be my, my disciple. That anyone who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he makes it very clear that the blood that determines who we are is, is the blood of Jesus, not our biological blood any longer. And that's why if our first loyalty is ever to country or political party, or, that's idolatry. Because we're Christians first. And, uh, and then discipleship is the process of putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and culture. That's discipleship. So, so yeah, I'm born again. I'm in this new family of Jesus. But now to be a Christian now is I put off the, the, the parts, the, the negative parts, the sinful parts of my family and my culture. And every culture has got sin. That do not belong in the new family of Jesus. I put them off and I learn to live. How do I live in this new family of Jesus? That's discipleship. That's what we're doing as churches. Uh, people are coming in our church and learning, how do I do life in this new family of Jesus? And uh, that's the hard work of discipleship. And, uh, and so we like to say, Jesus may be in your heart, but Grandpa is in your bones. It's one of our, one of our nice summaries. So yeah, you're a Christian, Jesus is in your heart, it's wonderful. But the reality is, unless you're a disciple, just Grandpa's in your bones, and Great-Grandpa's in your bones. And that's impacting your behavior. It's like you came out of Egypt, and you're free, but you still live as a slave. And the people, the Israelites had to learn to be free people. They were, were all freed by grace. Salvation's all grace. But discipleship is going to the cross and dying with Jesus. That, that's the hard work of discipleship. That's why pastoring is so challenging. So here's, so you're going to do a genogram. But let me just show you mine uh, for a moment uh, to give you a, um, uh, uh, all these squiggly lines mean something, all right? And, uh, but, uh, so here's myself and here's Jerry, my wife. We have four daughters. I have one son-in-law now. Uh, there's my wife, there's my, my mom, my dad, and here's my grandparents on both sides, okay? So uh, just very quickly, I, and I never looked at any of this stuff before I, before I had start 1996, that story I told you yesterday when, you know, we crashed, you know, and, and then I, someone did a very brief genogram with us, like in, in 15 minutes, I'll never forget it. It was, you know, counselor. He says, let's, let's look at your parents' marriage, you know, and describe it. Let's look at your grandparents' marriages, you know. And let's look at your marriage. And we were like, oh, my gosh. You know, it was like, like our marriage was not that qualitatively different than our parents. And uh, even though we had been Christian at that point 17 years, and we were the first generation of Christians in our family. So it was quite, we were quite aghast that it wasn't that different when you looked at, looked at it honestly. Uh, and uh, so for myself, I, I actually... My grandfather here, my grandparents are Italians from Italy, and so they came and immigrated to uh, Brooklyn, New York. But my grandfather on my mother's side was actually a mafia guy, like, like in the movies, like Godfather movie. Like, seriously, he was like one of those. Uh, so he was very abusive uh, to my grandmother, openly had affairs. I mean, he was just, he was, he was what the Proverbs would say, he was an evil man. Uh, never worked, I mean, legally, of course, you know, but so he... He, uh, my grandmother wanted to leave him because it was an arranged marriage, but you didn't, you didn't do that in the 1920s. But the way he, he disciplined my mother, who was the oldest of four, was he put a gun to her head as a young girl and said, if you ever disgrace the family. 
and always called her whore, uh, you know, and other Italian words for whore, basically. And so she lived a very isolated life uh, with severe emotional deprivation and abuse. I mean, uh, very possibly was sexually abused, uh, we don't know, uh, but had a horrific childhood. And uh, never really left the house very much. He put the family in an Italian pastry business, uh, which still exists to this day. You can my cousins now run it. And uh, she worked there and came back home, but she really didn't have, have a life. So they're very rich. Uh, you know, they're driving Cadillacs in the Depression, you know. Uh, my uncle was called Kid Millions, you know. But so then my father's family was, a, was very poor, and they were on welfare in the Depression. So my father uh, gets a job at the pastry shop of my mother washing dishes at 12. He's an honest guy, ends up marrying the boss's daughter. But he's very traditional Italian as well, very old school. So they get married and start having children. But she has no capacity to raise us because she's so broken internally. But she's trying to do the Italian cultural thing of have children, you know, mama and all that. But she, she's, she, really, she, she ends up having a, a series of breakdowns, really her whole life, breakdowns. So hospitalizations. Uh, and, and so she can't raise us. So we raise her. In a sense, our job as kids was to take care of mom because she was in and out of the hospital. She, you know, cooking, cleaning, she, she couldn't, couldn't manage it. My father was, you know, again, this traditional loyal Italian father, but he was never around. He kind of lived his own life. He provided the, the money, and uh, he was gone, you know, except for coming home on weekends. He'd give us beatings, and that was kind of his thing. Italian goes back to Naples, Italy. It's a long story, but every weekend we got pretty severe beatings. Uh, severe beatings, I mean, he'd be put in jail I mean, for what he did to us, and so we kind of were raised on our own, you know, four of us, and I was the youngest. So when you come from a family with abuse, uh, things are really screwed up, to say the least, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I came into adulthood uh, with a number of gaps. Uh, when I became 17, I said, I'm leaving this home, I'm never coming back. But I went to college and became a Christian at 19. And when I finally met my wife, you know, and then we got married, I remember my wife would always ask me questions about my crazy Italian family. And I would never want to talk about it because it was so painful. So I would just say, it's, it's under the blood. You know, I'm a new creation. There's no reason to talk about it. And she would always say, you are not a new creation. I live with you. <laughs> and, and what happened? You know, what? And I just, I would not talk about it. And uh, so... But there were some scripts I brought into my leadership. By scripts, like just things that were inside of me that really impacted my leadership that I was very unaware of. So things like, for example, you exist to keep everybody happy. So like my, my, my role as a child was make mom happy. Do you understand? So, you, you know, you, you know we didn't, I didn't like, it wasn't like fun and delightful and holidays. It was like, you know, crises and, you know, is mom okay? So is it any wonder I became a pastor? Now I'm keeping everybody happy. Are you okay? You know, are, are you okay? And, you know, and we're called to shepherd people, but I over-shepherded people. And uh, I over-functioned uh, and trying to keep everybody happy and had about nine visions in the church so people wouldn't leave, you know. And, uh, but I just, I over-pastored people. Secondly, I, 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 you don't have a right to enjoy your life. I mean, you know, the day my mother died, you know, at this point, I'm, you know, life's great. I'm like, you know, I'd say, Mom, I'm just like, 
love being married to Jerry. You know, life is good, you know. And she goes, you have no, you know, you have no right to be happy. Why should she be happy? I'm not happy, you know. It was like, it was like so because we, we didn't do delight. We didn't do play. We, we, we didn't do fun. It just wasn't, we did work. We worked. And, uh, and so, you know, as a pastor, we just, we were a working church. We, just, we worked. I mean, I would have been a workaholic in any profession. It was just in the bones. Men, that's what men did. You worked. Your, your whole value was in what you produced and what you did. And, uh, and so, of course, I'm pastoring a church, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, enjoy life. I'm just making everybody else happy in Jesus and, uh, you know, working all the time. And, and so I, did I do Sabbath? Never. You know, delight, play. I mean, any theology for any of that. Um, if, for me to really have a break, I had to really be suffering a lot. You know, I had to really be exhausted, burnt out to a crisp. Then I merited, you know, a, a break. Uh, and thirdly, it's not okay to make mistakes. You know, my family, you got a mistake, you got you to beat. You drop the dish, you got a beating. You know, so, you know, you're a pastor, as you know, you, you take a lot. We were talking last night, you take a lot of hits. You know, and, you know, you preach, you preach your guts out in the sermon. And nine people say, you know, good, that's a really good pastor, thank you. And the last person comes out and says, that's walking out the door and says, that, 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 that sermon was awful. That's, that's literally happening. That sermon sucked. Pastor Pete, I'm like, oh, let's go find another church, you jerk. You know, you know who do you think you're talking to, you know? But you, you, you take that home with you, and it would just really, like, like you know, we, we make a lot of mistakes as pastors. I mean, we're going to make mistakes. The, the challenge is we do it in a public setting, and so, like, people see our mistakes, and, and we normally take some hits for mistakes, and a lot of hits. But for me, you know, I was preaching grace but living law. You know, I could preach it, but in terms of how I functioned, that one comment might take me down for, like, two days uh, to actually recover from it. And then, you know, your worth and value is based on what you do, not who you are. You know, the gospel is your love. You don't have to do anything. I love you, God says, you know. But, you know, I preached it. But the reality is, you know, my worth and value was in, you know, how's the church doing? And uh, everything from size to who's leaving the church. And I can go on and on. I, I, I didn't do, I never saw a conflict resolved in my family. All I saw was yelling and screaming. And so when there was conflicts in our church, and we had lots of them, like every church, you know, I just like, I just would, I, I, I saw so much yelling growing up. Like, I'm not a yeller, so I was just like, I'll just make everybody happy. Like, I'll take the blame. Just blame me, and let's, everybody be fine, and let's move on. Like, I was like a classic, we call it false peacemaker. But I did not like tension and conflict, so I would just say, blame me, and let's move on. You know, marriages, I, you know, I, you know, my, I never saw a happy marriage. I, you know, a lot of the men had affairs, and all the women were unhappy. All the women were unhappy. Ants, I think of everybody, as unhappy. So my wife is unhappy. But, hey, I'm not having an affair. I'm a Christian. But it, it really felt kind of normal that she was unhappy, to be honest. It didn't really phase me that she was complaining uh, a lot. And uh, because I was preaching about marriage in the Bible, you know, from Ephesians 5, but I was living schizaro. Does that make sense? And I believe in women pastors and leaders. I mean, I, I'm a total commit believer uh, in that. Uh, yet, the macho-ness of the Italian culture would come out. And because it was in my bones. And so, you know, I had a lot of work to do. Now, here's my wife's family, which is an Irish Catholic family. And her mother's in there. She's 91 right now. There she is. She's got 23 grandchildren and 28 great-grandchildren. Okay? She's still alive. They, you know, goes to Mass every day. 
and uh, very tight. That's her birthday, her 90th birthday party. And I married into this family, so very stable. But very interesting, because my wife, you know, she would always say, yo, your family's so screwed up. <laughs> you know. But then finally she had to look at her own family. And her family has so many wonderful qualities. I, I, I thank God for her family uh, because, you know, they're like my family now, and I married into such stability. But, uh, you know, they, they, have some, they have some, you know, shadows as well. So in their family, for example, uh, there's a lot of social shame. You know, be good. They're always concerned about, you know, social shame, not like the forks in the right place and dressing properly and what people think. Incredible about that. Secondly, you know, don't fight. Uh, the family does not do uh, conflict at all. And they all fought a lot growing up, and their mother was always yelling, don't fight, but they, they, don't, they didn't respect differences. You couldn't be different in that family. You had to be like basically her mother. Her mother's very strong. And so they're all Democrats <laughs> since John Kennedy, you know, in the 60s. And so you would never dare at the table say, I'm voting Republican. Like, that would be like suicide. Like, so there's, a, there's not a respect for differences. There's an expectation of the same. Everyone's going to be the same. Uh, it's very deep. Uh, and then there's safety in numbers. Her mother's really, they're really into, obviously, physical numbers, always being together. But they don't do emotional connection. They, they don't do sadness. They don't do, they don't do those, di we call them the difficult emotion. We don't call them negative emotions. Just difficult emotions, sadness, anger. Well, they do anger. But they don't do sadness and fear. They don't do vulnerability. So if you have a, you know, if you let, let go from your job or, which has happened to her siblings, it's amazing to watch them interact because they, like, will joke about it. But yet it's incredibly sad to get let go after 30 years of being in a company. And yet they unable to, like, share the pain and empathize with the pain because they just don't do sadness. So they're, so they're like, they're like half human. They're basically, you know, they're great to be with, but there's a real, there's, it's very hard to be intimate very hard to have close relationships. I love her family to death, but it's a reality uh, of the family system. So we can go on, but you get the drift. So here's what we're going to do. Pull out your genogram and uh, this sheet here. And uh, hold on, I'll give this to you. Sorry. Is this yours? Okay, so, so here it is. So all these, how many of you have ever done a genogram? Raise your hands. Okay, if you have, good. And uh, so what I did, just to give you a sense, well, I, I took me quite a number of years to, to say, how do I, how do you take this skill and, and bring it to a discipleship in a church? That was the question. And to really help our people get formed in Christ. So, so this is a, the, 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 all these boxes and circles mean something. For our sake here, I'm not so concerned that you get all the, all the lines right that we're going to draw about your family. Because the goal here is an, kind of a simple awareness of your family, looking back three, four generations. And, uh, and then we'll talk about how it impacts your leadership as well as how we do discipleship in the church. Uh, so don't worry about getting it all right. Uh, so the box is the is the um, s symbol for male, and circle is the symbol for female. So what I want you to write in these two boxes is your biological father's name, and then your biological mother's name, and that in that spot right there. Okay. Now say you were adopted. Um, and, uh, it, you know, you just note adopted. Say you adopted at a very young age. Just note that. And then you can put the people who raised you uh, in those boxes. Okay? Next, now, from, you're going to go from left to right. These are going to be the, your, your brothers and sisters who were born from these two parents. So not, not half-brothers at this point. So, for example, I have an, and you go from left to right. So 
the left, you'll see I have an older sister. So you put a line down, and she's a girl, so I put a circle, and I put her name, Gloria. I have an older brother named Joseph and Anthony, and I'm the youngest, and you're the star of your genogram, so you go all the way down, and you put a box there. Okay? So put your, your brother and sister is going left to right beneath your parents and put their names there. All right, next. If, you, if you're married, you put kind of like a football goalpost here like this, okay? And then, so I'm married to Jerry, so it kind of goes like this, and here's my wife, Jerry. So if you're divorced, don't worry about that right now. Just put your, your marriage to your spouse. And then, now we have four girls. So just have lines going down. Again, line, circle, Maria, Christy, Faith, and Eva. We have four children. And you're going to go, you go left to right. Do you have one? Do you, do you have a, you need one? Do you have an extra one? Do we have a, she, he needs one here, yeah. Everybody have one, right? Anybody else look, need one? Um, yeah, right here. Okay, then just put your grandparents' name up there. Uh, if you know their names. So you'll see, here's my father. So your grandparents on your father's side and your grandparents on your mother's side. If you don't know their name, just put question mark. So there you go. At least you have a little sketch there of three or four generations. You've got your grandparents, your parents, you and your siblings, that's three generations. And if you're married uh, with children, that's a fourth generation. Okay, we all good so far? A little sketch? All right, next. Um, now, if your parents are divorced, you put two lines through it like that. Or if, you, if, you're, if your grandparents divorced, or if you're divorced, you put two, you know, you were divorced, but you put two lines through it. Now, let's say your parents divorced, my parents divorced, assume <laughs> Joe and Francis divorced. Let me go back here. They divorce. Joseph, my father, remarries. So you put a line going this way to his new wife named Sue. And the same thing would go with your mother. Say so your mother, your parents got divorced, and now your mother remarries. It goes over here. And let's say they have a child and named John. That John is your half-brother. So he goes over here. Does that make sense? So if your father or mother, you know, remarried, uh, and maybe multiple times even, you just keep going across over here. You can imagine and this can get quite complicated in families. Uh, let's say you're, in some, some of your parents didn't, didn't marry. They actually just lived together. It was common law. And just, you know, you'd, have a, you'd have a dotted line going. It wouldn't, this actually wouldn't be solid at the dotted line. Let's say your father met somebody on a one-night stand. He had an affair. And, uh, and actually a child came out of that affair, even if it was just one night. Well, that, because the baby was born... That one-night woman is in your genogram. That, 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 that's in your genogram. Because a child came out of that, and you have a family member now floating out there. Okay, then, now up top here, let me go one more time. Let me show you this again. So here, here's going to be your aunts and uncles, because here's your grandparents. But now your brother, your, your mother and father, they have brothers and sisters. So here's your aunts and uncles. Now, we don't have time for you to put all your aunts and uncles. So what I want you to do is 
just write the names of aunts and uncles that were significant. Like, in other words, they, they made an impact on your family over some generations. So it may be something like, for example, you know, Uncle Harry uh, you know, murdered somebody, ended up in prison for 25 years, and you didn't even know him. But, you know, it really like, brought shame on the family. So, like, Uncle Harry makes the genogram. Or maybe you had an aunt that mentored you. You know, she was like, you know, she really was a positive influence on your life. Well, you want to note her. Uh, so it's just those, those significant people, uh, a few on the aunts and uncles line there. Uh, it may have been nobody, but you may have a couple that were really significant. Okay, so l l now in your notes, so this is, this is, you're going to need like two hands for this. You know, you got on one knee, you got your genogram. On the other, now go to page five. So I need you to have like, I know it'd be really good if you were all at tables right now. So it's kind of like, here you are, you're sitting, and you've got your genogram over here on this, depending if you're righty or lefty, right? On one knee, you're writing, and then you got you got to be able to look at this sheet as well. Okay. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you through this sheet and explain it. As I'm speaking, I want I invite you to you know feel free to fill some out as I'm talking, but I need you to only partially fill it out because I'm going to give you some time when I'm done because I need you to just be listening to what I'm saying so that you know what to do when I stop. Okay. So. Now, listen, we're not, we're going to look at your family, and we're not out here to, like, tear up your family. Like, we're not, I'm not like a morbid guy, like, digging up dirt and betraying your family and all that. And we're not going to focus on the positive legacies, because we just don't have time, and, and, and the positive legacies are not what give us trouble. It's the negative stuff that was passed on that we're often uh, unaware of. So, um, and... 99% of our parents did better than their parents. And, cause, and think of it this way. Think of, a, think of a soccer ball going down the field or a football going down the field. You know, your parents had the ball. They got it from their grandparents. And they, they did better than them. And then they handed the ball to you. And hopefully you're doing a little bit better than your parents. And you bring the ball down the field. If you have children, your kids will get the ball. And hopefully they'll do better than you did and bring it down the field. But the point is, like, unless, you know, if anything, this process will give you compassion for your parents because you'll realize where they came from. And so actually, my parents did better than their parents. With all the flaws I mentioned, um, they actually did quite well considering where they came from and what they went through as kids. So um, now you're going to be, as you're filling this out, you're going to, it's going to be just, imagine you're between 8 and 12 years old. Now you're an adult now, obviously you can think about it. But you're, you're thinking about those formative years when you were young. You know, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13, somewhere in there. Because those were formative, shaping years. And so, for example, my father, uh, you know, it was a very, you know, I hated him growing up. But my father, actually, when I was in my early 20s, became a Christian. And uh, we actually had quite a good relationship the final 20 years, uh, 25 years before he died. Uh, however, the impact on me from those early years uh, was very deep and remained. 
and remain to this day. Like I'm very aware. So I, I've got to do that genogram from that spot. Okay? Uh, all right, so here's what we're going to do. So you start with, now I'm on the pop, top of page five here. Next to each family member, you're going to write two or three adjectives describing them. So again, you know, my, my, my father, he was a workaholic. My father worked seven days a week. I just, all I know him, he's working. And, you know, sports games, never, I was a big athlete, never came to a game. Came to one game for like 20 minutes. But he just, he just, there was no time for that. He worked. Uh, and he was physically abusive. You know, that's a deep memory for me uh, of beatings. And then, but he did love music and education. And I put that down because he, he really uh, drove us to study because he was an, you know, immigrant family. And he wanted us to make it in America uh, and wanted us to get the American dream. So uh, music education, it was, a, it was a big thing for him. So you'll write down two, three adjectives that describe them. Your parents, your grandparents, whatever you know about them. Uh, your siblings. Try to couple them. Um, then next, number two, two or three, and next, next to the lines of your, of your marriages, of all the marriages, describe those marriages in two or three adjectives. So for example, you know, from what you think back, looking back now, your parents' marriage. Because marriages really impact a system. Uh, so I wrote down my parents, conflicted. They were always fighting. Just, they, they just, I just remember them fighting. Now, I wrote stable because there was never a question of them divorcing, but uh, they couldn't stand each other. And then thirdly, there was no intimacy. I mean, I never saw my parents touch hug, say I love you. There was none of that. It was like they were a team raising the kids. But uh, it was not a happy marriage by uh, any means. But I would, So those are my adjectives for that. So you'll write that down, whatever you know of your grandparents, marriages, and then you'll write what about your marriage. Now if you had time, we would do your, if your children are married, we would do that too. And aunts and uncles, you could imagine how revealing that would be as you look at everybody's marriages. Because marriages are very significant of creating an atmosphere uh, in homes. Uh, thirdly, now you, then you'll see in your sheet there what's called an emotional relationships legend. Now, what this is, it's, it's, see, what makes a genogram particularly helpful is it's getting at a different part of your brain. You're looking at your family through like visuals versus writing paragraphs. And so each of these lines m have meaning to show how did people relate in the family. So, for example, uh, this is the line for cutoffs. My father was cut off from my brother. He joined a cult uh, at 19, and he was cut off from the family for years. Uh, and we, we had, there's lots of cutoffs. So wherever there was like a cutoff, my, my, mother, my wife's family, though it was very stable, had a lot of cutoffs because they didn't do conflict. They would just disappear relationally. No, no one talked about it. It's like, you know, Uncle Harry disappeared for five years, you know. And so some of you have a lot of cutoffs. Sometimes it'll be between siblings. Um, uh, but the question is just how many cutoffs there are. Every family's got some in there somewhere. And then secondly is a sign for abuse. There's three lines. You'll see it on your chart there with a squiggly line there. And uh, uh, we're talking about sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, because abuse, it, it, I realize it's painful to put in a piece of paper, but it... it it's such a violation of boundaries, God-given boundaries, 
that it wrecks such havoc in a family. It has all kinds of like reverberations. And rarely is abuse one generation, very rare, uh, unless someone breaks it somewhere. And uh, so you'll want to note that. So I started with my grandfather to my mother, and then I, you know, I had to go down and around you know, for it. But um, you know, you, you'll, you'll want to note that. Thirdly is a line, is a squiggly line there. You'll see that on the Emotionally Relationships Legend. It's kind of a squiggly line. And uh, you'll see that between my parents. You know, lots of conflict. It's a word for con conflict. And you know, just kind of consistent conflict um, and tension. And so you want to know, where was there like a lot of tension? Maybe like you know, your grandmother with your mother. It's a lot of fighting attention. Or maybe your older sister with your mother. Right? A lot of fighting, you know. So you want to know, where is there a lot of conflict? And you know, some of you have a lot of conflict lines. Maybe yourself with your oldest daughter or son. And you're like this, or, or, or between siblings. A lot of tensions here that never really kind of get resolved. So you'll note that, you know, the conflict line. Uh, then uh, there's a three-line thing there. You'll notice your notes. It's called enmeshment. And enmeshment... Three lines is, is I, I like the word to describe it as it's overly close. Uh, there's there's pressure to think and feel alike. People act a certain way, and so it's not just like okay, everyone in our family is a baker. You're going to be a baker. Do you understand? You're going to family business. You're, everyone's a, a doctor. You're going to be a doctor. Everyone's a pastor. You're going to be a pastor. It's kind of like this pressure, uh, or but it, it's actually beyond professions. I'm talking about just even pressure to think and act alike. Like Jerry's mother, um, you know, when she invites, the, even now at 91, she's just, you know, when she invites for Thanksgiving, it's like it's really not an invitation. It's a demand. You are coming to Thanksgiving at my house, you know. And, I mean, our children are in the 60s. But uh, she's just, she, she doesn't, I mean, people aren't living it right now the way they used to, but it's just, there's just, there's not a lot of room for separateness. And to be different. And we know that raising our own kids sometimes, right? Our kids go their own ways. We're like, where are you going? You're gonna do you're gonna live the life I want you to live. Because you're a reflection of me. And if you come from an immigrant family, you know very strongly how that is. You know, we we came to Canada for your behalf, you owe us till you die, you know, and, and you, you know you, you pay back. And uh, it can be very, you know, intense. Uh, and then this is the line, this dotted line is the is the symbol for distance. And that means there's not a lot of emotional closeness. Like you maybe get together for holidays, and you know there's loyalty in that sense, but it's kind of like emotionally just distance. And so like we're, we're just like if I have a problem, I'm not I'm not going to go to them. I'm going to go to my friends. You know, we just we, we get together, but we don't share. You know, we're not really vulnerable with each other. We're not sharing disappointments and setbacks and those things. We just that's not our relationship. So some of you will have like a lot of distance lines all over your genogram, and you'll just want to note that. Okay, and then uh, on, you'll see on the bottom of the page a, a box that says themes. And so you're going to step back and look at your, look at your um, I'm on number four there. You're going to look back, look at genogram, you'll like this, hmm. And, and you'll look for, what are some generational themes here? So, for example, uh, you may see addictions. Wow, there's like a lot of addiction, alcoholism, you know, or drug addiction, or sex addiction. Um, or there's a lot of affairs in this genogram. There's a lot of uh, abuse here. Uh, there's a divorces is a theme. A depression is a theme. My wife's family, very interesting depression, you know, runs in her family. Uh, mental illness, uh, maybe abortions, 
uh, perhaps children born out of wedlock. I mean, you can go on, unstable relationships. But what are some themes as you look at this? And then you'll notice another chart. Uh, so I had cutoffs, overworking, and abandonment. It seemed, you know, we joke, we, you know, I, did, I was in a doctoral program of a marriage and family, and we had to do a one-year genogram and interview every living member of our family. It was very painful. I mean, you'd only do that if you have to, you know. Just... And, but it was amazing how many of my cousins and as I interviewed everybody felt like orphans. Our parents were there, but they were not there and had this feeling of abandonment of just like we raised ourselves. And uh, so uh, you'll note that. And then, then the last thing is earthquake events, which is these are events that happen anywhere in your genogram. You know, you may, maybe you weren't even alive, but they were such big events that they kind of, they were an earthquake that sent shockwaves for generations. So for example, you know, I had a, a cousin killed in Vietnam. Uh, that, was like, that was a major earthquake event in our family. Uh, for various reasons. Uh, I uh, had a cousin born with Down syndrome. My brother Anthony joined this cult. That was an earthquake event. My wife's mother, at eight, had a sister die who was nine. That death, they never, they didn't, they didn't grieve it. Like, they just kind of, like, moved on. Her family, to this day, does not do grief and loss. They just move on. And so when her husband died, she shed a tear, but she went in a corner and did it privately because she would not want to show grief. You know, so that, that event of her sister's death, because, you know, whatever happened, they did not grieve it. Never talked about it again. Too painful. So it's events that happen in your family. Again, it may be way back that it's just kind of an earthquake event. And then what you'll do is, lastly, on, you'll notice on page six, there's two questions there. You know, then you're going to step back and say, hmm, what might be one or two insights uh, that you're, I'm becoming aware of how my family uh, impacted who I am today. You step back, hmm, what might be one or two insights here that are becoming clear to me? So it could be anything from, um, I have a hard time getting close to people. Now it makes sense uh, because we weren't close. I never really kind of learned it. So I can do the preaching thing, but actually getting close to people, very hard for me. Uh, or why I struggle with conflict. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I never saw it modeled. I, of course I run away from conflict. Uh, why I have a hard time asserting myself and leading uh, maybe is really hard because I know if I, if I say this is the direction I think we should go, then four people are going to leave the church. And I can't bear being... When, when, when I, when people, when people, before I got aware of all this stuff, when people would leave our church, it would take a chunk of flesh out of me. I mean, it would just... It was like someone just put a knife through me because it was touching a wound. Now, it hurts when people leave our churches, doesn't it? It just hurts all of us. But for me, because of my history, it was like being left alone all over again. And I'm telling you, it would take me a long time to recover. And so what happens, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lead. I would lead, but then if I felt something bad might happen, like you might leave, you'd say, Pastor Pete, we need a prayer meeting like they do in Toronto. We need those Toronto people. They're on fire for God. And we need a Friday night meeting. I said, all right, well. And I, but I know they're saying it in such a way that if I don't do it, they're going to leave. You know, you have those people up here? They're not asking you. They're telling you. They're threatening you. And so I'd give in. And so I had multiple visions in the church to try to keep everybody in the church. And it was a very confusing place to be. 
Uh, but that issue of abandonment just had such an impact on my leadership. I, I just wasn't able to be, be comfortable in my own skin and say, this is the direction I think we should go. So it just hit something. Anyway, and then you'll step back and say, number seven, what is one or two specific ways this may be impacting your leadership in the church? Obviously, I just gave you a few. All right. Uh, now, any questions? Yes. Just put both, but both. Pick the dominant one for sure, but then what's the one that really you think impacted most? But n- note them both. That's fine. That's fine. Yes? Let's talk about that. I got about three questions for you. To, so we'll, I'll come over to you because I'm, I'm going to give you about you know 15 minutes of silence before God, and I'll raise your hands and I'll come around if you have a specific question like that. You know we got to talk because I'm just giving you a general. I'm giving you like kind of a hundred thousand foot view to do this genogram. But I know there's a lot of family situations that I that I did not include here, like specific things like that. Um, but any, if you have a question that relates to maybe others who might be thinking, let's do that now. Yes. Yes. And then if I go back and see the conflict and all of the persecutions, I'm going back to the past which I don't want to remember. And I think Absolutely. And so but then as as I see this diagram, is it to to leave this what I am now that has been the the byproduct of my past? Yes. Trust me. Just do it for my, just do it because they invited me to come. And trust me, it'll all come together afterwards, after the break, and we'll talk about it. But the answer is yes. We don't go back for the sake of going back to pull up dirty laundry. We only go back where it's hindering us from going forward in Christ. That's the purpose here. Uh, And so... You can't, you cannot change what you're unaware of. That's the basic principle. So if you're unconscious, you're just doing it. You don't even know it. Then you pass it on to your children. So for now, just look at it and do as best you can about how you think it might be impacting you. Because make no mistake about it, your family system was the most powerful impact in your life and ever will be until you die. One last thing is, I know some of you are probably immigrants or your parents immigrated from another country to Canada. That's always an earthquake event. In fact, because they left everything. Any immigration is an earthquake event. That goes on there. You know, grandparents came, or I came to Canada because you left family. They left their, their standing. They left their culture, their language. They came here and they didn't speak the language. They started at the bottom. All that st- enormous stress. 
So you want to note that because that has a big impact on children, grandchildren, and just the whole culture thing, okay? All right, last one, and then we'll... Absolutely. And then you find yourself enmeshed in not wanting to be like... So, yeah, so, so, so an 18-year-old grows up in this family says, I hate my family. I'm moving to the West Coast. So they go and move to Vancouver. I'm not going to think about my family anymore. I'm done. I'm free. But the truth is their family is controlling their behavior. Do you understand? They do everything out of a need to rebel and show I'm different. So they may be living 3,000 miles away, but they are totally enmeshed. But they're unaware of it. Uh, they think they're rebelling, but they're actually very tied. And so you can live very far away geographically and be very enmeshed. You can live in other countries. Okay, here's what we're going to do. 15 minutes, we're going to declare silence here. So in other words, this is, this is holy work, kind of like that we did that Explore the Iceberg. I want to ask you to do this as a, as a prayer before God, like open to the Holy Spirit. What does he have for you today? And uh, he's going to take you where he needs to take you as far as you should go today. Don't worry about it. He, he, he's a good Holy Spirit leading us to Jesus. But he has something for you today. He brought you here to the conference. And you want to just prayerfully be open as you begin to fill this out and asking God, how are you coming to me in this? But first, you've got to just look at it. You, you have to look at what is. And uh, so, I'm gonna, so if you want to talk to somebody... I'm going to ask that you just go outside and have the conversation. You know, go to the bathroom, whatever you need to do. But definitely, if you're with your spouse here, do not give your opinion of your spouse's family. This is not, not the time for opinions. Uh, if you think your spouse is missing it, hey, your mother. No, not now, okay? So you can talk outside. But let, let's, let's really, let's do this as a prayerful before the Lord time and... Uh, for him and I'll, I'll let you know when it's time about a few minutes left to go to make sure you get the number six and seven okay all right you've got about five more minutes so what i want to make sure you do is you want to make sure you get to question six and seven you're not going to finish this obviously today but just as best you're able what do you think might be the personal impact on you and then from what you can see we'll talk about it after the break Anything you can see about how it might be impacting your leadership from as you look at us. Just take a step back, you know, and be open to that question, and you've got just a few more minutes. So what are a couple of questions that uh, I want to make some applications for leadership right now? And actually, if you're on your notes, I'm on page uh, seven. You know, someone just asked me, like, I'm, you know, I'm really depressed. This is really, like, tragic, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's like going into a pit for some of you. Like myself, when I first did this, I was like, if I go there and let myself look at this, I may never come out. You know, I could die here. Uh, and so, so but, but there is, I've got great news for you from, from God. I mean, I, you know, this, this, we'll talk about that in a second. It's all, all a gift if we hand it back to God. So we'll talk about that in a second. But what, what, are the, what, may, what, what was your observation? Just doing, was it, was it, what was it like for you? What, what are you realizing? Oh my gosh, I'm realizing. Or what's a question you're carrying? The first principle of, uh, of emotional spirituality is, is go back to go forward. That's, it's, that's something you never stop doing. 
Do you understand? Because there's layers. It's like an archaeological tell. There are layers to this thing. So as you move through the seasons of life, new stuff's coming up that you never encountered before. So for example, I, when I did Succession, um, it brought up a whole another series of issues for me. Of, of like, oh my gosh, I'm letting go. And now these voices of you're a loser. You know, everyone's going to forget you. I mean, it brought up, an, I had to go back to therapy. I did some therapy. Like it was, it was intense. My children, my first daughter got married. My, daughter, my children are now 21 to 30. So even functioning as a, as a peer now with my girls, I never saw that modeled for me. I never had a, like my parents didn't have a healthy relationship with their adult children. How do you be, uh, how do you have a relationship with adult children? How do you be peers where I'm not parenting like I was, but have a wonderful relationship? I never saw it modeled. Now I'm gonna have my first grandchild. It's another, another developmental task. Dying is another, so you're constantly relearning because I'm not doing, I don't want to do my 60s and 70s and 80s like my parents did, I'll tell you that. They didn't die well either. They didn't live well, they didn't die well. Okay, so I'm, I'm working through developmental tasks all along the way. Pa parenting at different season, teenage kids, I mean, this, this doesn't end. Something happens at church that's new and all of a sudden you're triggered. When you find yourself triggered, you want to ask yourself, what might this go back to? Because that's coming from somewhere. Do you ever notice two of you can be in an event? One of you is severely triggered. The other one's like nothing. Like I can be with my wife's family for like three days. I'm fine. Like nothing's triggering me. I I'm fine. I love them all. My wife is so triggered because she lived there. Do you understand? Like her older brother triggers her. I, I enjoy going on vacation with her older brother. He's he lives in sarcasm. I'm fine. I'm just having a good, he's my friend. But I didn't grow up with the kid. You know, so again, when you're triggered in situations, you want to ask yourself, wow, and uh, what might that go back to? And uh, that's why some people leave the church, you know, and, and things happen. And why did I respond that way? Why did I, why did I lie in that conversation? Why did I say things that aren't true? Do you ever have, like, things are coming out of your mouth, you're kind of anxious? And you're like, why am I? And after I said, why, why did I do that? My, of course, if, you, if your spouse is, is healthy themselves, they'll say to you, why did you do that? My wife, Jared, is like, why did you, why'd you say that? So, I don't know. I got nervous. Why? What, what, what are you trying to prove? I mean, so, so, I mean, things are just coming up. So these are all, these are discipleship, spiritual formation moments. So again, the principle is we go back in order to go forward. That's the principle here. We don't go back to go back for morbid introspection. And we're going forward in Jesus Christ, but along the way, we're finding we're getting stuck. Relationally with God, people, our leadership. And you want to ask, why is that? Every family is different, right? So, and every culture is different. So, uh, for example, Irish Americans specialize in sarcasm. I don't know, you know, just, just everything's sarcastic. Well, if you've ever been around Arabs, they do not do sarcasm. There's nothing in the culture about it. So, so we had Arabs in our church, and my wife used to offend these Palestinians. Oh, my God. Like, because we found out later, they just didn't do sarcasm. Now, you can say, well, it's your issue. Get, learn. You're in America now. You know, you're, not, you're in New York. We do all do sarcasm. No, it's like we're, we're about loving people. That our goal is love people. So I understand that's, that's how you were formed and shaped function sarcastic. Now, sarcasm can be used as a form of anger and passive-aggressive behavior. It can be funny. It all depends on how it's used. 
But we're always, our whole motivation is to love. We are the best lovers on the earth. So you have to ask yourself the question, is the way I learn to relate my family of origin, which I just do, I do, I do it unconsciously. The question is, are people experiencing it as loving, as Christ? That, that's really the issue. And so that you want to, not that you're becoming a, a, a chameleon or you're becoming a wimp or not being yourself, but, but we're, first of all, we're leaders in God's church, but secondly, we're followers of Christ. And uh, so learning to love well, and we'll, we'll talk about emo- skills and tools later, but that is our primary objective is to be lovers of God and lovers of people. And so our family is never our, the way, I know you're comfortable with that, it's your culture and your family. I don't know your genogram, but you're, you're, you're living in the new family of Jesus now. And in the new family of Jesus, we love well. That is our number one priority. And we're, we're, we're functioning now under a new set of, of operatives. Uh, so culture and f- your family of origin can never trump that. And if you say, I, I want to live this way, and I want, that's fine, but then don't claim to be a Christian who's committed to living in the new family of Jesus. So it gets to a theology that's very, very important. So let me, let me, with that, let me, let, me ju- let me jump in. So here's some applications. First of all, uh, I've got to take responsibilities there. Now here, here's the good news. Um, the past may not be your fault, but it's your responsibility to get a good future out of it. You know? So you know, Philip Brooks was an Anglican priest. He said the only way to get rid of your past is to make a future out of it. You know, God will waste nothing you know, in the 1700s in New York. And now, I just want to take you to the story of Joseph for a second, okay? And uh, in, in um, uh, the spirituality book on uh, page 112, there's a nice big section on Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. The guy was traumatized, all right? Now, again, we all have different levels of trauma in our family, you know, some not very little, others a lot. But Joseph lost everything. I mean, the guy lost his family, he lost his culture, his language. Just think of the, just imagine the trauma of being thrown into a pit, being considered dead, being carried off as a slave. I mean, and now in Egypt, he doesn't speak the language, the food, everything's, I mean, talk about loss. And then he's sold out, he's falsely accused, ends up in prison for 10, 13 years. I mean, talk about loss. Anybody could be bitter and angry at getting dealt a bad deck of cards. It was him. But he had a tremendous sense of God, didn't he? I mean, just he stays with God even though he can't see where God is. Now, if you study the story of Joseph well, he grieves his past. I mean, he weeps. Remember his brothers come back and he, read Genesis 43. He, he weeps. So he's very much in touch with the pain of his losses. In fact, he names his children, Manasseh and Ephraim. The name means, I mean, trouble. I forgot in Hebrew. I mean, he's so in touch with his brokenness and his pain but he's got a tremendous sense of the sovereignty of God, of God, and the bigness of God that put him in that family at a moment in history. He could have been born to any other family. He got born to that family that did that to him. You were born into a particular family at a particular moment in history in a particular country. God could have put you anywhere on earth. He puts you there. Now, and some of you, like myself, had some really horrific things happen to you. You say, oh my gosh, and the grief and the sadness we were talking about earlier. But do you understand what, and Joseph's able to say this, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, so then don't be afraid. He has got, I'm I'm gonna read this paragraph from page 112. He says, Joseph affirmed the large loving hand of God through all his pain and hardships. He says, it's not you who sent me here, but God. He repeatedly said that. 
he affirmed God's mysteriously leading into his purposes through darkness and obscurity. That God, the Lord God Almighty, works through history, in, through, and in spite of human evil, to get his purposes done. And that God integrates it all and takes it. We offer it back to him. Even our sins and mistakes and detours that we go on. We offer it to God. He takes it. And then we become a blessing and gift to the future. Nothing's wasted from your past if you'll bring it to God. So do you understand? My history was so painful. But do you know what? When I speak, it made me a pastor. For me. I can feel people's pain. Because I, I know pain. I, I can relate to anybody because if you, if, you if you will feel and absorb your pain, you will relate to anybody's pain. Do you understand? If you, if you will grieve your losses of your life, and we all have losses and sadness, you can grieve with anybody's losses, but you must own your own. But if you do not grieve your losses, you will not be able to grieve other people's losses. You'll be very limited in how you can go with people. So I honestly... My history is a gift, such a gift that's enabled me to preach and feel people in, that, in the audience. I can feel them. I can, I can feel with people who have been raped on broad daylight, happened to a friend of ours. I mean, I can feel people who have died of AIDS in my living room. I, I can go with people places, racism. Uh, you know, I, I, just, I can go places with people because I, I know pain so well. And my wife will often say to me, she's limited emotionally because she didn't have quite the same level of pain when she when she looks at me and we're in some of these situations she goes i wish i could go there like you go there so naturally and easily but it comes out of a out of a history and um you know why did god let joseph go through so much pain why did god put you there and the answer is who knows god knows but i can tell you this god is sovereign and joseph had a deep sense of god moving in through and in spite of affairs. Why, why you have a child with... with, with, with I have a, my oldest child uh, has mental illness. She has borderline personality disorder. And my mother had it as well. And my uncle had it in the family. But that has taken me into a whole world of mental illness. I volunteer. I, I, I co-lead a group for families who have someone borderline. I mean, I'm in this whole world. And I actually love the world because I just feel so... My mother was... You know, my mother had... I'm just so comfortable in it, you know? But it so grounds me into life. So in our church, I just gravitate to people with, you know, schizophrenia and bipolar. I just, I just like move toward them. Those who want to kill themselves. I just like, my mother always wanted to commit suicide. Like I just, I just like, I have a special heart for them. I, I can see them and feel them, you know. And, uh, but it's a gift and, and, and not a curse. And Joseph had such a, I mean, that story of Joseph is worth its weight in gold. Because you understand, you have been called by God to be a blessing to the nations. You have been called by God to feed nations like Joseph. And, but the way God's getting you there is not the way you thought. You thought he should have put you in a better family, a perfect family. You should have got all the developmental tasks properly done. Why did my father have all these other children, all the brokenness of the marriage and all the, you know, I don't know. All I can tell you is God's going to use it for good, for you to be a blessing to people if you'll offer it back to him and not be embarrassed by it and shamed by it. And uh, let it, I mean, again, think of, think of David committing adultery and murder and putting it in 2 Samuel to be read by all the history. He put it out there. Genograms break all of us, doesn't it? I mean, we're just on equal footing here. I mean, you want to talk about becoming a multiracial 
churches in, in Canada, this, this enables you to become multiracial. Because it doesn't matter if you're from Kenya, it doesn't matter if you're from China, it doesn't matter if you're from Israel, it doesn't matter if you're from Eastern or Western Europe, Canada, U.S., you know what? What your color of your skin is. When you do genograms, we all got brokenness. There's no exceptions. And so for us, being a mul- we're 73 countries, we had so much racial tension, it just leveled the whole church. And we became the church that we are today. Because, you know, yes, we, we have different gifts and cultures, but we are, we're all broken. And we've done genograms with people from all over the world. And I can just tell you, there is brokenness in every family. Some are more broken than others. Some have more, you know, some have more secrets than others. Every family has secrets. Family secrets are secrets for a reason. Because they don't want you to know. And I like to say, I, 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 I lost a leg in a war of life in my particular family. And so, uh, but I, I, I can tell you this, I, I walk with a limp like Jacob, you know, of my family, and I'm, I'm weak, but I'm telling you this, I'm walking. I'm not crippled. And you may have a limp, but your limp is a gift. And you're forever weak and dependent and broken. And you put your genigar up there, people can connect with you. The question is, can you be broken enough to put it up there and be honest about it? But once you do it, everybody can do it. But if we're the leaders and we can't do it, others won't do it. So we've got this protective layer that we kind of hold. And uh, so, oops, sorry. Um, So again, when we join God, we find some of our best material is found in the failures, yes, even the sins of our past. I mean, oh gosh, I could go on. I mean, darn, there's so much here, you know, and whether it's abortions, whether I, you know, you know, carry the weight of that and and what do I do with it? I'm a leader. And, you know, all this stuff from our past, you know, and affairs and, and the pain of it all. And, but somehow, you know, in an appropriate way, we're vulnerable and broken about it. And God delights in brokenness. You know, he, in Psalm 51, God delights in a broken heart. Paul leads out of his weakness. He boasts about it. It's a very different way of leading leadership. So, see, our shadows come out of that. And so, you know, we want to minimize the impact. So, for example... Let's say, for example, I'm in a, I'm, 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 you're on my staff team. We're on the staff team, and I'm leading. We're in a planning meeting for the next year. But I'm anxious, and I'm driving. We've got to move on. We've got to, you know, the, the numbers. We've got to get these numbers up. And because and, and, uh, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm unaware of it, the anxiety that I'm bringing to the room. But it's coming out of my family of I hear my mother's voice. I know I'm not hearing it. You're a loser. Look at that church down the street. You no good bum. I always told you you were a bum. And I'm trying to, to find my identity in, 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 my, in, in this church here. But it's a shadow, and the people in the room can feel the shadow as I'm pushing the meeting agenda. But it's very subtle. But it's, a, it's an elephant in the room. But I'm unaware of it. And I can't, why can't I stop working? Why can't I stop? I, why can't I let go? Why am I out of control here? Where's that all coming from? And sometimes I'm trying to find my identity in it. And, and, and it's coming aware of how it's affecting planning, how I build teams. So we're not dealing with stuff. As a team, we're not talking about things openly. What's that about? Where's that coming from? And it's not coming from Jesus, obviously, but it's coming from somewhere. You know, I'll have a false peace, but I don't want to rock the boat here. And, uh, okay, but it's affecting how I'm doing teams and building and how I exercise power. I'm dealing with a lot of pastors not doing that succession. And I'm realizing, oh my gosh, succession is really a challenge. Uh, when you've been there a long time, but to give away power means you've got to have a good sense of your own power. You know, like, I can let it go because my identity is firm in Christ. I'm not getting my validation from you because I'm getting it from somewhere else. But see, if I didn't get validation growing up, and few of us did, 
and now here I am, I'm, 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 a, I'm an adult, but I haven't worked through some stuff, so now I'm trying to get validation from you. So I'm here speaking so you'll tell me I'm wonderful, so I can go home saying I feel okay about myself. Do you understand? So I'm really preaching to myself right now, not you, because I need you to affirm me because I'm not sure I'm okay. Does that make sense? So it's all twisted, but I can't sort it out because I don't have time. I'm too busy to sort it out, and everything's out here. And what happens is we're not transforming anybody because we're not getting transformed ourselves because we don't do that kind of work. We just want to teach people their gifts, give money, build a church. But the truth is it's superficial. And nobody's really being deeply changed by Jesus Christ here. But it begins with us. And so, you know, we want to, so you know, there's the elephant in the room. I just love that picture, you know. So, so I want to, here's, here's the most important thing here. Is, is that, not just, well, the second most important thing in your life is we want to reframe equipping to learning to live in the new family of Jesus. So here's the, you'll see a little diagram there. And uh, so uh, on the next page. So for example, so, so, what, so here's, here's the church. You're pastoring the church and all these, these people are in the church, 25, 50, 100 people. And they're coming in and they're all bringing the way their family did life. Do you understand? They're, they're, they do life the way their family did it. How they, how their, and you see a list there of some examples. How their family did feelings. How their family did emo, How their family did conflict. How their family, what's success? Uh, you know, how do we do cross-cultural relationships? Uh, you name it, we can go down a list. So, the, so of course, pastoring is difficult. Because they, they, they've been living for hundreds of years in their culture and family of origin on how to do life. And now here they are, boom, they're in your church. And you're trying to reparent them on how to lear, learn to live in the new family of Jesus. This is why it's such hard work. So you can preach, don't, when you have a conflict, go to your brother in private, speak to them. If it doesn't go well, bring another brother, go two. If it doesn't go well, bring three, you know. And, 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 you, and, you, and, you, and then you wonder, why are we recycling the same conflicts Year after year after year, because we underestimate how deep this stuff is in their bones. And if we think one sermon is going to change it, we are under such an illusion of, of for them to learn, how do I live in this new family of Jesus? So here's a, here's a, okay, here's a, this is from, uh, we were in a small group, and we had this guy in our small group who, he was a pastor in a previous church, something had happened, he ended up in our church. It was a big mega church, he was like a children's pastor. And so we were trying to do this genogram thing with him, you know, and help him his home discipleship. So I said, all right, his name was Dave. Dave, how did your family do appreciation? Did they express appreciation? So he goes, nope, only on birthdays and Christmas. So he didn't do appreciation. Do you understand? He, he just doesn't say anything. How did your family do empathy and feeling felt? He wrote, nope, nope. Like that's the, that was the limit of his, 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 his emotionality. Nope. Dave, how'd your family do anger, sadness, fear, and hurts? And he said, anger and yelling. And he said, zip on the rest. That was, again, that's his expression, zip on the rest. And this guy's coming from a Christian family. His father was a pastor. Okay, next. How'd your family do affection through touch? Uh, dad, yo, dad, yes. Mom, no. Nope. No, zero to ten, yes. You got affection and touch... Till you were 10, 10 and up, nothing. How'd your family do words? Zip. Very expression. You can imagine him being your pastor. You weren't getting a lot. 
How'd your family to conflict? Mom complain, dad zip. How'd your family do forgiveness? Silent treatment, it will pass. How'd your family talk about sex? Taboo. How about children? More the merrier. Marriage, never talked about it. Must marry a believer. Men and women's roles. Men rule, women cook. Now, this guy's been a Christian pretty much since he was a child, and now he's 51 years old. Now, wouldn't you say something's wrong with our discipleship picture? Been through seminary. Now, what ha- interesting, his, then his, his aunt, at 35 years old, got killed in the World Trade Center. Imagine the tragedy of that. Never found her body. Just, just, just imagine the family grief. They had no ability to grieve it. The fam- and It's on a video at our, on our website. I'll show you later. He's on it. And they did not know what to do. They did not have the resources to grieve the loss of a 35-year-old with two small kids in the neighborhood. And imagine a whole country is in an upheaval. But their Christianity had, did not give them any resources to be able to walk through that thing. And now he's just now going to the World Trade Center to actually see her, you know, where that memorial there and all that. Because he's just now beginning to grieve it, that event. So, you know, let's say, for example, you know, how, how'd, your, you know how'd, your family do con- how'd your family do conflict? You know, was it a lot of criticizing? Was it a lot of defensiveness? Was it contempt, stonewalling? I don't know. But, but the question is, how'd your family do it? And how are you doing it right now? But you're in the new family of Jesus. How do we do conflict in the new family of Jesus? We do not do this. In the new family of Jesus, we actually speak respectfully. We speak honestly. We speak clearly in a, in a you know, with integrity, we, with, with a, in a timely fashion. We listen. We learn to listen. And we negotiate differences. Well, I know I never learned that growing up. I know, but you're in the new family of Jesus now. This is now a discipleship issue. Because life is filled with conflicts on every level. So this is it's pretty major. You know, we can go on. You know, how'd your family do with emotions? Just get over it. We didn't do emotions. I know, I know, but I, I got that. But you're in the new family of Jesus now. In the new family of Jesus, we do do emotions. Because of psalms and lamentations and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Emotions are very important. So we feel in the new family of Jesus. I know, but I don't do feelings. I know, but, you're, but, but we're not living your family anymore. We're living Jesus' family here. So discipleship becomes, I'm going to help you learn how to feel. We can go on. How'd your family do sadness? We didn't do sadness, you know. You know this, is, this is jackhammer work. This is, this, is, this is discipleship. Now you say, well, I don't want to do it. I know you don't want to do it. You're going to have the same old problems in your church. Because people aren't going to really be changing. So we can go, let's go down a list here. I mean, look, look, you know, look, look at the, look at the list. I mean, I mean, sexuality, I mean, think of how, sexuality. We learn kids, we're learning from the streets. I learn from movies and our ideas of marriage. I mean, all that, but no, but we're in the new family of Jesus. We've got to teach our children and teens about sexuality, but I know, but I'm not comfortable talking about it because my family didn't talk about it. I know, but, but, but we're the leaders. So do you understand? We've got to do our own work. So we can then bring this to our churches. But if we don't talk about it, don't worry. The culture is doing plenty for us. They'll do the discipleship. I feel like our government, my, my, I can't speak for Canada, but I feel like our government has entered the discipleship arena. I'm like overwhelmed by it. Like they are setting the norms of gender, marriage, sexuality. I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, what, like, you're, like, you're, like you're the church here. And, uh, you know, gender roles and all, and all that stuff. Um, uh, how about, like, we don't tolerate racism. 
We don't tolerate racism or classism or sexism in the body of Christ. It doesn't belong here. So when we see it, we call it out. We like to say, who can your child not marry? That will tell us whether the gospel's changed your life. So, you know, we're in Malaysia. You know, we, we have about 100, 200 Chinese in our church. Now, most Chinese culture, Chinese, I, I remember we were in Malaysia with 600 pastors, and we were doing a, a, one, of the, one of the skills called uh, community temperature reading and expressing appreciations. And they couldn't do it. It was really hard. Oh, I don't like this. Actually, I hate this. I, I, I know, but the Bible speaks about, you know, praising God, giving thanks to God, that praise and thanks are close, and that expressing appreciations is part of living in the new family of Jesus. But the way you motivate most Chinese families is you motivate by criticizing. So you got an A. Why didn't you get an A plus? You got a 99. Why didn't you get a 100? And, uh, you know, I know some Chinese Canadians here, and, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So do you understand? A discipleship issue becomes how do we do appreciations in the new family of Jesus? You know, we express them. We speak them. We don't motivate by criticism. I know, but it's Chinese culture. It's got 5,000 years. I don't really care. Do you understand? We're not living Chinese. We're living Jesus. We're in the new family of Jesus. So in every situation, you know, new fa- we don't, you know, we're, um, um, we're, we're teaching people how do you live in this new family of Jesus. That is the work of us as pastors. That's the work of discipleship. But of course it begins with us. We're doing it and we're leading everybody else into it. And uh, that's why it's so critical that we take people into it. So, uh, and then a- another byproduct of doing this kind of work is um, growing in differentiation under D there. What enables us to be a community of 75 plus countries and cultures is that we're very, con- we're, 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 we're a global family that bridges racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. But what unites us is that we are now united under Jesus and we are the new family of Jesus. We're always using that language. We are the new family of Jesus. So we do everything differently. We do marriage differently. We do singleness differently. We do work differently. Uh, we do vacate. We do every, we, we Sabbaths. We, we, we look at everything differently, money differently. So what's success in your family? You know, many families, success is getting a great job. Success is making a lot of money. Uh, success is getting a master's degree. Well, that may be your family's success and it drives you, but success in the new family of Jesus is becoming the person God called you to become and doing what God called you to do. That's success. So if God called you to be a, to work in the inner city of Toronto uh, in a refugee center and make $45,000 a year and your parents are outraged because you're not a doctor. I know, but I, I got to be a doctor. My parents will die if I don't be a doctor. I know, but you're not, you're, you're, your first loyalty is to Jesus. Do you understand? So, so that, that's a major discipleship issue for a lot of young people. But we've got to help them with that, that what is God asking you to do? That is success. So you may become the president of Ford Motor Company. And you may become, you know, president of the United States. But you know what? If it's not God's will for you, you're a failure in Jesus' family. Because success is doing his will. And uh, so it's very, very liberating to become who God uniquely made you to be. So differentiation is, is, is I want to grow to be who am I, you know, who God uniquely made you to be. And I can remain connected to people without having to cut them off. They disagree with me. So, so you, know, this is a, you know, we grew up in families and, and, and cultures where we have to, pretend to be somebody we're not very often, especially as teenagers, you know, to be accepted. And when you do this kind of like genogram stuff and go back to go forward, you begin to realize, oh my gosh, like I'm trying to be somebody I'm not. 
and we get to more of our unique, I heard you pray last night, our solid, true self in Christ, like who God's uniquely made you to be. And it frees us. Now, healthy parenting is you release your adult children to be who God called them to be. Very few of us grew up in those kinds of families. So we carry this kind of pressure, you know. And, you know, part of this is, is work is it, it enables us to become adults. You know, so, so maybe as a child to survive, I had to shut down. I had to shut everything down to survive the pain of my childhood. The problem is I was in my 30s married to my wife who felt lonely because I didn't do emotions. So how could I be close to her? So she's lonely. Even if I'm in the house, she's lonely. And so, but I'm still living out of that pain of shutting down when I was a kid. But see, now that I'm an adult, I can make a choice like, okay, I'm not going to let that, that past control me anymore. So I had to do some work to get free out of that history so I could actually have a healthy relationship, not just with my wife, but with everybody and connect with people and bond with people and begin to differentiate and be comfortable in my own skin and be the kind of pastor out of my own person, not try to be a pastor like you're being a pastor because we're different. And uh, so <coughs> I, I left some notes on differentiation skill. I don't want to get carried away with it, but it's a very big theme. And, and the question is, how easily triggered are you? It's a great question. So <coughs> what church is, is church is a place where we teach new skills with a new language and intentional follow-up for a transformed community. So our thesis is, you can only give what you possess. We can only give away what we possess, and we, can, we can't help but give away what we do possess. In other words, who you are is what you're giving. That's why your life is so important. But we as leaders are introducing, and we're going to talk about new skills of how do we love, how do we relate in this new family of Jesus. And, you know, some new language in this new culture, and then intentional follow-up we as leaders stop it so for example if i'm at a board meeting and, a, and an elder has, says a sarcastic kind of a nasty tone remark at the elder meeting across the table Has that ever happened to you and you're sitting there in the meeting you're like oh you don't know your mark went through now now again i depending on probably i probably would not do it this actually happened to me more than once um i would say something right to the person right there or I would do it probably in private, depending on the relationship. But I would pull him aside and say, Andrew, uh, what you did, did at that table, that remark, uh, was dirty fighting. Because we teach a skill about, it's called clean fighting. And I, I don't know his whole family history, whether it's sarcasm, passive-aggressive behavior, you know, cutting people, you know, intimidating. We all got you know, silent treatment, whatever his family may have done. But he did something that did not belong in the new family of Jesus. Now, I'm the lead pastor. So I pulled him aside and said, Andrew, would you not do dirty fighting in the new family of Jesus? And it was a discipleship moment for me. Because I know that if he's going to learn to live in this new family of Jesus, it's going to take these repeated stops to help him actually do life differently. It's not just teaching in a class or a course. It's going to need reinforcement. And so we are very intentionally, then, as leaders, helping people learn to live in the new family of Jesus along the way. Because it comes up all the time. You know, oh, that worship set went so long. Oh my gosh, I'm so angry about that. That's not how we make complaints in the new family of Jesus. I'm sure it's how his family did it. So, so we, teach, we have one of our skills that I notice and I prefer. You don't make a complaint without making a recommendation. And you say, I notice. I notice that worship went 10 minutes long and it really affected my sermon that I spent half the night preparing. 
I prefer that if you're going to go 10 minutes long as the worship leader because the anointing of God is on you, that you would talk with me first about it. But I'm not going to go in and just, ah, you know. So it becomes a moment of, of teaching. So, um, so here's this relationships course. is two courses. So we, did, we had to develop over a series, really about, it's been 20 years. But uh, it took us 17 years to get it down to eight skills that we teach in the new family of Jesus. And we had, it was 14, it took us years. And these become how, it's almost like an operating system of a computer. It's how we function as new family of Jesus, because we're not doing your family. And we're, and we're not doing your, and you have a lot of cultures here. And you'll have more in the years to come in Canada, that's for sure. And believe me, every culture is going to say, oh no, we don't do this in Indonesia, no. We submit to our husbands, and if he thinks we should. But meanwhile, she's stabbing him in the back. Do you understand? Because every culture's got their justification for unhealthy behaviors. We just all do it differently. And so we teach things. So we just did genogram. So actually, at New Life Fellowship, everybody does a genogram if you're in the course. Like, not, not that quite the depth we did, but pretty close to it. Because we want people to be aware of how their past is impacting their present. And uh, we, did, we did Explore the Iceberg. It's one of the skills we teach. Now, we did an abbreviated version, but we're going to help people begin to access their feelings and what are the things that hold them back and how it impacts their relationships. But we're taking people in to that iceberg for themselves for discipleship. And uh, so let me give you another example. In the leader book, the second chapter is Lead Out of Your Marriage or Singleness. So on, you'll see a chart on your notes. Look at this. So how do we do marriage in the new family of Jesus? And... Uh, <coughs> Hold on, let me get my, my notes here. So I, I just had a really good conversation with um, someone. Uh, so, so Christian marriage is different than secular marriage. So we do marriage differently. And the second chapter in the leader book is lead out of your marriage. And uh, so, like, for example, standard practice leaders, number one, make ministry and leadership my highest priority and first ambition as a Christ follower. But really, I would say Christian leadership or emotionally healthy leadership, I make marriage and singleness my highest priority and first ambition as a Christ follower. Number two, I see my marriage and singleness as a stable foundation for my ministry and leadership. Yeah, I keep it stable. No, no, no. Number, I, and we, we, I cultivate intentionally a marriage or singleness that serves as a sign and wonder of God's love for the church and the world. Uh, you know, three, I've not reflected on how issues from my family of origin impact my ability to bond and connect with others. Whereas, no, we are like, I've reflected deeply on how issues from my family of origin impact my ability to bond and connect with other people, especially my spouse. My sexuality is disconnected from my spirituality and leadership. That's why most Christian churches, but no, no, for us, our sexuality is inseparable from my spirituality and my leadership. And so we like to say, you know, a, a Christian marriage, and I'll just, as a quick example, they asked me to touch on it here, is, you know, if I'm, ma if I'm, if I'm a married person, my first vocation is, my, um, is Christ, but then if I'm married, I've made a vow to my spouse. So my first ambition is to have a great marriage that's a sign and wonder for Christ. It's my first passion, and it's meant by God to be a sign and a wonder and a gift to the world. So I make it my first ambition. So, you know, my first ambition is not to build a great church, not to make a lot of money, it's not to do something great. My first ambition is to love my spouse, because I made a vow to that. And so, you know, you know I'm, it's not I'm a Christian leader and I'm married. No, I'm a as a Christian leader, I lead out of my marriage. You know, I, I've made a vow for life, and... Uh, you know, to, 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 to my spouse. And so I lead out of that love for my spouse. Now, if you wanted to live like a single person, you shouldn't have gotten married. But once you've made that vow, every decision is informed by that vow. 
And so, you know, the Bible's got a lot to say about marriage. You know, from Genesis to Revelation, it ends with a marriage, and, and God creates this marriage institution uh, in Genesis, you know, chapter 2. Uh, they're naked without shame. You've got song of songs right in the middle. And so the, the earthly marriage, as followers of Jesus, is very different. It, it's a whole different meaning for us. And Paul, when he talks about marriage, you know, in, Gen- in Ephesians 5, he quotes Genesis, you know, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What he's saying is that, that for him, he can't talk about marriage without talking about this revelation. Mystery is referring, it's a word for revelation in Greek. He goes, it's, it's, an unfail, it's an unfolding of the love of God on earth. There's something in Christian marriage that's more than just you having a happy life or getting along. It's meant to be a, a taste of heaven. It's meant to point people to the depth of the love of God for the world. They, people see something in our marriages that's very distinct. And so, you know, we've made a vow to be married to our spouse. And therefore, every decision, if you're married here, is informed by that vow. Just like a monk takes a vow. Once they take a vow, they change their name, they give away all their money. Everything's different. Because they're now, after a process of six, seven, eight years, they make their solemn vows. In the same way, we've made a vow if you're married here to your spouse. And that means that every decision you will make from that point forward is informed by that vow. Everything. Because you made a vow. That you're going to love this one person well until you die. And that this marriage will be a sign of wonder, will be a gift to the world. And that you'll lead out of your marriage. So that's a big help with limits. We were talking about limits with someone earlier. How do I make decisions on my priorities? Well, my oneness with Jerry is, first, it might walk with Jesus. But then secondly, it's my oneness with Jerry. What what does it need to be cultivated to grow and continue to blossom after 32 years? Uh, And then after that's settled, now I can, okay, I can come here to Toronto and speak tonight, you know, and be overnight here. And I can write a book, perhaps, and pastor the church in New York City. But if she's, depending on what her needs are and our needs are to, to, to be one and cultivate a marriage, that informs everything about my leadership. And hopefully I'm living everything out here first. So my mission is to convince Jerry that she's loved and lovable, that she actually feels it. And my first ambition is to make what's important to her important to me. That's my job. Because I made a vow to do that until I die. That's, let me tell you something. There is nothing in my family history in that. That is the new family of Jesus. That is so, that doesn't, how many of you came from families like that? Probably very few of us in this room. So this becomes, again, it's a discipleship issue. How do I be married? What's, what's a Christian marriage? Well, we've we got to train people. This is what it means to be a Christian marriage. And we do the same thing for singles. What does it mean to be a single person for Christ? H- how do I do that in this culture, in this world? And uh, so we pray for passion in our marriage, that our marriages had the fire that we had when we fell in love with each other, that sexual fire. We pray for that passion our whole lives, every day. We pray for passion. Most people think of Christian couples who are married as boring, sexually dead. You know, we had the fire, then you got married, then it was over. (laughs) I got kids and work and just, you know. And so, but you see, our love as married couples is meant to be a reflection of the love of God for the world the depth of the love of God for the world. And God's love for us is not just uh, loyal love. It's, it's a passionate love. And God passionately loves the world, died for the world. I mean, think of, think of Luke 15, the way he, he runs after his younger son. That's a passion, a delight. So we are to cultivate relations and marriages that are filled with passion. So part of we, we have couples pray every day for pa- sexual passion. 
after 10, 20, 30, 40 years, that we lead the culture sexually, actually. With that, that the gift of sexuality within the context of a covenant of marriage. That's where it belongs. It's so incredible. And this is the only, I'm only sexual, I'm only naked with one person on the earth, and that is Jerry in marriage. That's why it makes marriage so, has a sexual dimension of nakedness. There's nothing like it. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable. So we, we cultivate that nakedness and, and passion in our marriage as, as it, it's, it's, it's part of our following of Jesus because we made a vow for that. But, so we've had to learn, how do I be Christian and married in this new family of Jesus? Well, it's, again, it's radically different. And then I can apply the same thing to singles. You know, and again, here's the, the paying passion of Christ in the church. And, uh, yeah, this is great. So, you know, again, you look at Song of Songs, you know, you know, there's no flaw in you. You know, the person's falling in love in Song of Songs. And there's lots of flaws in that woman. But when you're in love, you can't see them. And we are called not just to fall in love, we are actually called to stay in love throughout our whole how many years God would give you with your spouse? Uh, that's discipleship. So we like to say romance is not an illusion. Romance is a revelation. That God put that in you when you fell in love. That was a revelation of the love of God. And that's meant to be cultivated and developed. And then it become a sign of wonder. And I'll leave it at that. And uh, again, marriage is meant to be a sign of wonder. That's quite a theology. And I did it very fast. But you get a sense of what the implications will be for your life. So we like to say you, you didn't just get married in the church. You got married for the church. We joke around, let's go make love and save the church and save the world. Because we've got this sense that out of our love, we love the church and the world. And so our sexuality is very much tied into our leadership, cultivating it. Uh, and we want to be a sign of wonder for our church. The best gift we give our church is a great marriage. We draw tons of singles at our church because they want to see marriages. They've never seen a healthy marriage. They've never seen a dynamic marriage. They can't even imagine such a thing. And they're looking for it. And we actually, in the new family of Jesus, we want to restore that. And then we want to see great singleness as well. So anyway, yeah, will you spend your love for each other? Uh, we would, Jerry and I would like to add this to the vows, you know. Will you spend your love for each other on us? It's missional. We go out two by two as prophetic signs, you know. Will you allow us to look for you as a living sign of how Christ loves us? That people can see something in marriages, a Christian marriage, they can't find anywhere in the world. But again, who gets discipled in marriage? I mean, hardly any of us. I, mean, I went through seminary. No one talked about it. It was just like, keep it together. Just keep it together and build a church, Pete. That really, that was kind of like the subtle message. Seek first the kingdom, it'll all come along. Well, no, it didn't come along. And it was a disaster the first eight years, you know? And um, so anyway, I just love those words. A ambition, passion, sign, and wonder. And I'd say, it's, and I, I'll have time to go into singleness. But same thing with singleness. Be intentional about the kind of single God's called you to be. On some of your singleness room and... You know, we, in, in the chapter on lead out of your, uh, the Emotion of the Leader book, talk about vocational celibates and um, uh, uh, circumstantial celibates. But, uh, you know, healthy singleness, and we talk about that. What does it mean to be a healthy single in the new family of Jesus? How is that different than we don't sleep around? We're not just, we're not sleeping around. We're not hooking up, you know, for one night stands. You know, we, have, we do healthy, I'm a Christian leader, but I'm doing healthy community here. I'm building community. I've got some close relationships. We don't say to single pastors, oh, you clean up after the event because we got to get home to our spouses. We don't do that kind of stuff. In fact, as one single pastor said to a friend of mine, uh, no, I need more time to go home and build community, not less. You clean up because I don't have someone waiting for me at home. I got to do more work as a single pastor to build community than you do. And I thought it was a great response, you know. And, uh, you know, we manage relations with the opposite sex well, but it's a discipleship issue. All right. And so we teach people how to 
how to have singles, how do I do this? You know, we don't just jump to touch, you know. I met someone, I'm sexually attracted, let's go to bed tonight. You know, we don't do that. So we, we teach people how do I bond and how do I connect. And, and so this is, if you think of your family of origin, if I said, how did your family do bonding? How did your family do connecting? You know, and, and we define bond as emotional openness and physical closeness, listening, confiding, appropriate physical touch. But this is a discipleship issue. But you've got to look at how did people do it in their families growing up. But now in the new family of Jesus, we want to build community. We've got to help people learn to bond in an appropriate way. Most of our young people, they, they bond by having sex. I, I don't know how to connect with you, so let's just have sex. Or pornography. And, and, and so, again, in the new family of Jesus, this becomes a big discipleship issue for us. And that's why we ended up developing skills to help people learn to actually do it. So, all right. Okay, let me, uh, let me close with this. Okay, got, good. All right. Whew. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? So, um, uh, we've got seven minutes before we, we, we close. Um, how about this? Why don't, I mean, I've raised a lot of issues here, haven't I? I, I hope you've got a few questions. Uh, but let me, let me give a, this is probably a good time uh, before lunch uh, to give you a sense of what, what do you do with this and with all this? And uh, I'll explain some of the materials that are out there at that bookstore as well. So in this journey, and listen, I, I was pastoring at New Life Fellowship for 26 years. I transitioned three-plus years ago. And so I'm on staff as a teaching pastor, but I'm also, half my time is given to take now, how do we help bring this EHS thing to other churches? Uh, and so we realized that people are reading the books, uh, and they're best-selling books all over the world, and, but it wasn't sticking in the church. It was like in pockets, and, but it wasn't transforming the culture from the inside out in the church. And so we started like to ask questions and go to churches and find out what's going on. And, and even as our own church was growing in number, we were having a problem keeping it as the culture in all the whole church. I'm talking about from children to youth to the board to, to everywhere. And so we ended up moving into about three to four years or slowly to we have two central courses. We said this is going to become part of the DNA of our church that we offer that everyone at New Life Fellowship Church goes to. And much like if you're not a Christian, we send people to Alpha, that these become centralized, centralized courses, not small group curriculums, uh, in the church that becomes the DNA of how we do discipleship. And, uh, and so, again, here, here's a great way to look at discipleship that deeply changes lives. The foundation of everything is teaching people to be with Jesus. That, that, because if people aren't learning to cultivate a relationship with Jesus, do you realize it doesn't matter what we preach, it doesn't matter what programs we have, we will not experience any changes in our churches. It'll all be just shuffling chairs on a Titanic. So this is the core of everything. It's getting people to be with Jesus. So we have two courses. The, we call Emotionally Spirituality course, which is the first course, which is what you have. The, you have the participants manual right there with you. There's three books. It's a, it's a big thing for eight weeks. And then you've got what we call the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. 
And we say it at New Life, like everybody goes through these courses. So we offer them every year consistently. So right now I'm actually leading the course at our church. We have 215 people meeting in that course, sitting at 25 tables with table small group leaders. I don't know if I have a picture here. So the EHS course um, has eight topics. Now these topics were not just, in, you know, in this, it comes out of the book, uh, in a workbook. These, these topics were not just like chosen out of like nowhere. Like, oh, what are some good topics for a curriculum? They basically are meant to frame a DNA of a discipleship paradigm that deeply changes people. And each one of these topics could have been eight weeks. They could have been a book because they're so big. Uh, so, for example, we just we touched on know yourself that you may know God yesterday. Just explore the iceberg. And uh, so that's one of the topics. You know, it goes, looks into David and Goliath and how David knew himself and knew God. Go back to go forward. You touched on that. We did it today on Genogram. Uh, but there's eight topics, journey through the wall, gets into dark nights of the soul, uh, enlarge your soul through grief and loss, introduce that whole big theme of lamentations and Job, and discover the rhythms of a daily office and Sabbath to get people, we'll talk about this after lunch, introduce people to grow into an emotionally mature adult. We don't, we're not emotional children here. We want to learn to function as mature adults and emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. And then develop a life that everything anchors around Christ. So imagine people read a book, they're doing offices. These, this office book, actually, the topic, it stands alone, but it actually goes with each of these topics. So imagine during the week, people are doing offices or twice a day, five days a week for eight weeks. It's the hardest part of the course. And then every week we meet together, we do an office, like we did here. We, we model one as a, as a large group, and then we meet for a two-hour meeting. And then the relationship course is about so this course is about your relationship with God and your interior life. This course is all about the relationships with other people. So they're two very different courses, but this you just did one skill and you touched on explore the iceberg. Imagine eight of these. You'd be like, oh my! And people come to church. I what is this? You know, I just came to church to hang out. But what you're doing here, you're actually introducing something of discipleship that deeply changes people. And so now it's like we've got 200 and, I think it's 201 churches right now who are doing the courses centrally in their church uh, in the U.S. and Canada. And we actually, well, there's people doing it all over the world, but we only follow the ones in the U.S. and Canada. And we just actually, only this past year, we actually got on this thing and started following it and clocking it. So churches sign up on the website, they get a phone call. How's it going? And we're clocking and we're learning. We develop all these materials to help people do it differently. So actually, I'm going to be inviting you to a course. There's a, there's a how to lead that course. On November 17th, we do it live stream. And it's a 10 to 3 event. And we're going to invite you to consider coming to that to watch how do you actually, how do you lead this thing? Like tables and how does it work? Because it's a different kind of an art form. Uh, so again, here's your material. So this is, this is a leadership book. This is for the high-level leadership boards and your senior leadership team. That's the book you read before you came here. That's with all these, you know, high-level topics, planning, uh, you know, et cetera. This is the EHS course. So uh, the reason this bookstore is important, at least in the U.S., we have a deal with HarperCollins that people can buy the materials very cheaply. Uh, so it's really cheap for churches to buy it. And Can Canadian HarperCollins, I know, will work with whoever, but that's got to go, I don't know how it's done here in Canada because your own laws here. But there's a DVD, for example, that goes with it. But we actually encourage you, maybe you might need to start with a DVD publicly with everybody, but we actually prefer that you teach it yourself in your church. 
or a point leader teaches it because you know your people. And so we provide on the website all the transcripts and outlines. And, but you might want to pick up the DVD. It's here. Um, this Jerry's book, Emotionally a Woman, it's a huge seller curriculum that's used by women's groups all over the world. And you might say, this brings out material. It's kind of it's supplementary material, and it's, it's tremendous material. Um, and again, it's, it's incredible proper curriculum. But it's not one of the two core curriculums that we basically require everybody at our church to, to go through. And then his church book, which many of you are familiar with in a workbook, that, that was the first book written that really gives a theological paradigm of emotional health. And uh, it kind of, if you're a teacher, preacher, thinker, that, that's probably a book you want to you know, go through. But uh, I think that's it for now. I'll, I'll leave it at that, and we'll, we'll, we'll stop. But I'm going to ask you this. As we close, uh, just write down questions you've got as we go into this afternoon uh, and come back, because we'll go into Sabbath and slowing down. We're going to move from this topic. Uh, but I know there's some questions out there that you have. And feel free to come to me uh, or write them down, hand them to me, and I'll make sure we address them later today. So uh, thank you. You've worked really hard this morning. You've earned a great... I don't know if you drink wine, you should have a glass of wine, you know. I, you've earned it. You've had a great morning, but thank you very, very much.